I had a colleague, uh, I assume you've heard of Ulrich Neisser. He, he was my colleague at uh, Emory for a while, just for uh, some years. And he said to me one day, your greatest strength was that you come from outside of the mainstream. Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest today is Michael Tomasello. He is the James F. Bonk Distinguished Professor uh, of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke. So um, he's an extremely influential cognitive scientist. Or, uh, it's actually difficult to place him in just one box because he's, he's been so influential in so many disparate fields. Uh, there's developmental psychology, there's evolutionary anthropology, cognitive science, the study of animal cognition, and he's certainly a thinker who is uh, unencumbered by conventional intellectual silos. He's written two incredibly influential books, which are certainly among my favorite technical cog-sci books I've ever read. So the, the first uh, is called The Cultural Origins of Human Cognition. And the basic idea is that um, if you look at the time course of human evolution, the difference between us and apes can't be explained purely by evolutionary forces. There simply isn't enough time. And uh, so the most plausible case then is that uh, humans had maybe one or two big genetic additions. And from those, that started the sort of ratchet process as Thomas Hiller describes it, uh, which got us to where we are today. So uh, uh, Mike argues that the, the one big addition was something called joint attention, which is the social process by which one person directs another person to the thing that they're interested in. And uh, this is the sort of the ability to, sh to, to share attention, and it gets people to care about the things that you care about and understand the things that uh, you understand. And that's uh, sort of what, what separates us from other species who haven't been able to bootstrap culture, which is all of them. And uh, it's an absolutely brilliant book, so simple and so clear. Uh, the, second, the second book is called Constructing a Language. And it's important because it provides a theory of language which is almost totally opposite of Chomsky's. So Noam Chomsky is this huge looming figure in linguistics, still to this day, and in my opinion, the field of linguistics uh, has just become too damn attached to his ideas. And so when I read uh, Mike's views on the language book, uh, or in his language book, I was like, yes, finally someone who gets it. Languages, uh, sort of as he puts it, aren't about syntax uh, and grammar fundamentally, which is what Chomsky sort of thinks, but they're tools for communication ultimately. And their, their structure reflects this purpose rather than some grand innate grammar. And, uh, you know, because of some of the stances that he's taken and some of his career decisions, he enjoys the advantages of an outsider. He can think deeply for himself because he's not tied to the conventional ideas of the establishment. Uh, that's something we explore a lot in this show. And I think that's sort of where his power comes, comes from, at least in part. And uh, while everyone else is kowtowing to Chomsky and the computationalist, Mike is an independent thinker taking ideas from other brilliant yet non-establishment outsiders like uh, Jerome Bruner. Jerry was a mentor to Mike, and they're two of my absolute favorite cognitive scientists who have influenced me tremendously in the way that I think, so it was really a treat to hear Mike talk about their relationship. And then one other thing which, uh, which Mike said which really stuck out to me is that um, he always writes with younger people in mind. Uh, because sort of as he, he says, older people for the most part are just going to continue believing what they've always believed. It comes through in the way that he writes, which for an academic is breathtakingly clear and direct. Uh, I thought that was a, a pretty brilliant framing for thinking about one's audience. And uh, he's clearly been successful in influencing many people over the years, uh, myself included. So if you enjoy the show, you can connect with me on Twitter at Cody Commerce. You can also subscribe to my newsletter on my website, CodyCommerce.com. And uh, also, please consider subscribing to this podcast on whichever platform you would be listening through. So, without further delay, here is Michael Tomasello. All right, Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Sure. 
Uh, so you are one of the most uh, highly cited cognitive scientists, psychologists, however you self-identify, uh, of all time. But I would still argue that you are somewhat uh, underappreciated, even considering all that. <laughs> uh, I have no like real metric for for why that is, uh, but I mean you've 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 made you, you've written several books that have just made huge impacts, and they're on several different topic areas. Uh, and and reading them was were. Really, it was really the first time that I was seriously angry at my undergraduate curriculum for not forcing me to have read them. Uh, so, well, it, I think I think it's I, I think it's a little bit out of the mainstream of psychology. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, and I think that's probably where your um, where your uh, impression is coming from. And that's you know I think that's sort of why I'm so drawn to you. It sort of it sort of feels like I'm talking to Noam Chomsky if Noam Chomsky wasn't <laughs> wrong about everything. <laughs> Uh, okay, I'll, I'll take that uh, in stride. Okay, which I know is a, a tenuous, tenuous comparison to make. Yeah. At any rate, uh, let's get into it. I'm kind of so you recently moved uh, to Duke from the Max Planck Institute in Germany. Yeah. And so, uh, what does your sort of um, you know your average day look like now uh, at Duke? Uh, well, I, I I was a professor at Emory University before I got the call to the Max Planck, and um, so uh, it, my day is like a normal university professor now in Leipzig in in Germany at the Max Planck. I had full time research all day every day, and lots of resources and an ape house and all that. But there's mandatory retirement um, as there used to be in Britain. That they don't have it anymore, but they're used to. Because uh, Max Planck is a government institution, so uh, so I, I came back where I don't have to retire, and I have a normal. I teach one course per semester, and I have uh, some three graduate students, a postdoc, and a lab manager, and a bunch of undergraduates. Uh, so I have a small lab at at um, at uh, in Leipzig. I had a lab several times that size. So did you did you trade the uh, chimps for undergraduates? What was that? <laughs> Well, I still have some uh, uh, collaborative things going on uh, with uh, with people who are working with chimps. So I'm not doing nearly as much, but I'm doing a couple of things. Yeah. And so um, you're from the South originally, right? From Florida? I'm from Florida. I am, yeah. Y yeah. And, so I, did and it, I was actually an undergraduate at Duke. Right. So did it feel good to sort of have a, a homecoming? Did you enjoy this sort of stage in your career moving back to somewhere that sort of feels like your roots. Yeah, yeah, to some degree. I mean, the uh, um, the, the job in at the Max Planck in Leipzig was uh, pretty much perfect from a scientific point of view. But the weather in northern Germany is not that great, and having grown up in Florida, especially. So, uh, so one of the things I really enjoyed was, you know, like this weekend, uh, uh, I went with my daughter out to the river. It was it was beautiful weather and warm and sunny, and uh, you just won't get that in February uh, in northern Germany. You're telling me right now we've had two different um, these sort of winter storms hit this week in in uh, England, and it's oh my god, it's it's, it's <laughs> awful. Uh, so. I, I kind of want to go back and talk about some of your early experiences. You you mentioned in an interview that I was listening to before this that uh, sort of your, your your first psychology class was uh, looked at a lot of comparative cognition and that sort of stuff, and that you were immediately hooked from that. Um, so uh, assuming that that's that story is accurate, what what sort of progressed from there? How did you go from becoming interested in it? To, to thinking, okay, I could do this for a career. Well, I mean, uh, there, there's actually a very specific story about that, which is that um, I was really enthralled by psychology. And then I had a friend who had gone to the University of Wisconsin in Madison for a semester, which was at that time a very hotbed of, of anti-war protest and hippiedom. And she said, gosh, it's such a great t place. There are all these uh, like 30-something uh, people all over town and I said well what do they do for a living she said they're graduate students and I said well but how do they pay for graduate school and she said no 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 they pay you to go to graduate school and I said what <laughs> and she said because I was thinking like medical school and law school where you had to pay to go yeah and uh, she said no 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 if you go to graduate school they give you either a teaching assistantship or a research assistantship and they pay you to go and I said where do I sign up 
And uh, you haven't had a real job no, uh, since. Never had a real job in my whole life. I just I, I like to say I all I I've been in school my whole life. I just switched sides of the desk. Yeah. Um. So one thing that I'm really curious about is that. Uh, so the whole field sort of made sense to you. It sounds like, but was there any particular thinkers who you initially read? saw their work and were like, wow, this is really it. Well, me. I mean, I started out with Piaget and, and, and he was the one that um, really gives you the feeling of how important this is, figuring out how human beings figure out the world and how important that is. And he had a biological background and a philosophical background. So he was dealing with big questions um, and doing it from an evolutionary point of view, which is the, is, which is the point of view that got me interested in the first place. My first class there was uh, in psychology. I never had, uh, back, you know, back then they didn't have high school psychology classes. And so my first class was biological psychology. And we had a lot of animal behavior stuff um, and, um, uh, you know, homing pigeons finding their home and, the, and uh, bees communicating and the uh, Darwin's finches and all this really unbelievably interesting stuff about how animals operate um, and then Piaget basically is looking at infants like they're another species uh, you know looking at them ethologically in there and, and trying to figure out you know he was very insistent that children have their own logic they think in their own way uh, that's different from ours and 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 I and and that was the, the combination of this sort of evolutionary perspective and the you know these these really interesting creatures that are so different from us but at the same time similar enough and they're going to turn into us at some point it just was a um you know a really winning combination and then later um uh i read vygotsky uh he wasn't translated into english until mm, the end of my graduate career and um and i read vygotsky and that um was the second big theoretical framework that really um uh made sense to me that Piaget really didn't deal with culture really um, and so um, the put the two of them together um, was um, was made, made it all fit uh, and then what about Jerry Bruner well Bruner was my kind of adopted uh, advisor he didn't really really well he wasn't my real advisor but um, I got to know him various ways I don't remember the first time I met him but um, it was after he came back from Oxford, um, and uh, and oh, I do I, I, this. I, this may or may not be the absolutely very first time, but um, I had done work on joint attention and early language, and he was the first one that coined that term. That was while he was at Oxford. He had a couple of papers with joint attention in the title. Really? Yeah, yeah. And wow. Uh, and those that was in the early '70s, say, and then. Um, I uh, did some further work on joint attention and language that he really liked. He'd seen it published and really liked it. And we ended up in a symposium together on language acquisition. And then we became, uh, you know, a, a sort of, uh, I sort of adopted him. And, uh, and he gave me advice along the way and wrote letters of recommendation for me at every step of my career, including getting the Max Planck job. And uh, so, um, yeah, he was my, my adopted mentor. And, he was the kind what, what of... What drew you to him? Well, just, I mean, just the breadth and the depth of everything. I mean, this is a guy who yeah. knows, who knew everything. Uh, um, and and more from a... So if you... A really interesting read for you is his book called The Acts of Meaning. And the first chapter of that, he says, okay, when the cognitive revolution started, it was basically him and uh, George Miller at the Center for Cognitive Studies at Harvard. And they started all this cognitive studies in, in response to behaviorism. And so they wanted to get, you know, mind into the picture, I think is the way he says it. Um, but then as things went on, there started to be a split and George Miller was uh, more of a kind of a computational type and artificial intelligence and computation and modeling and all that. Um, and Bruner was more of a on the humanist side of of, human, of bringing meaning into the picture and culture and um, commu intentions and communication and the kinds of things that you don't find in a normal cognitive psychology textbook because the more computational side won. 
Uh, and um, that's why I said before about being a little out of the mainstream. The mainstream um, in cognitive psychology has, has been the computational approach. So that was why I was drawn to Bruner, was he was more um, on the uh, social science side of things and less on the computation side of things. Yeah, you know, this is actually, I mean, uh, I think this is all connected sort of my interests here, but uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his work and particularly I'm drawn to the way he talks about narrative. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's something that we've kind of lost sight of uh, to too big of an extent in in cognitive science is, is the... Uh, the fuzziness of narrative and how it structures the way we think about meaning and ourselves uh, and what other people are doing and all this stuff, right? Because it's it's the sort of polar opposite of the computational approach. It's the most qualitative, the least uh, easily uh, sort of uh, explicated. Uh, you know, well, he has some really happening. he has some really interesting papers that I tried to uh, I don't know beef up a little bit or dig into a little bit. I wrote a chapter on Bruner's approach to language that's buried in some obscure volume somewhere um, where basically um, trying to argue that the sort of categories of narrative which he was really into uh, he would all this talk about Vladimir Propp and all, all, the, all the classic narrativists um, that essentially the grammar of a sentence, which is thought to be much less fuzzy and much more computationalist, like grammar, Chomsky and all of those. Right. Uh, but grammar is a, a, a sentence is essentially a little narrative. I mean, there obviously there are different kinds of uh, sentences, and you can say, you know, um, you know, let's go, and that's not really a narrative. But but your normal descriptive sentence, where you say the cat is on the mat, is a narrative. I mean, that's what it is, and the and complex words um, like if you, you, you take an abstract word like justice what is justice well when you give the explanation uh, the definition of justice it's going to be a narrative justice is when this happens and that happens and then this happens so I just think that you know language is shot through and through with narrative and narrative is as you say on one end of the continuum but all aspects of language are um, what you could call um, uh, syntagmatic or um, uh, relational or something like that uh, that um, uh, we wouldn't have language without that dimension and then narrative is the end of it where we put lots of those kinds of sentences together to make a, a multi-layered uh, narrative. So now I'm starting to uh, pick up why your ideas seem so brilliant, which is that it seems like a lot of them had their genesis with Jerome Bruner. Yeah, absolutely. No question. <laughs> no question. Um, I, so I believe it or not, you know, you might be able to tell this based off the name of the, the podcast, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty interested in the cognitive revolution. And so what is your sort of take on uh, your historical exegesis on what happened in the cognitive revolution, particularly so partially with what you're saying about how um, the sort of Bruner camp lost, yeah, uh, and then also what happened to anthropology, because uh, uh, you know certainly there's still some connection between cognitive science and anthropology, but it wasn't like at the beginning, uh, in 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 you know the sort of early 70s uh, that 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 sort of thing. So what do you think happened with uh, the sort of more qualitative uh, however you want to describe it, Bruner approach and its relationship to anthropology. Why do you think that divergence took place? Well, I mean, anthropology. Um, I'm not. I. I. I don't. I, I don't really know enough uh, of the history to know. But there, it was part of the cognitive revolution in some places, um, in the guise of what was called at the time cognitive anthropology. That term may still exist, but. Um, it, it, it didn't take off the way one might have thought. So people like Roy Dendrati was a very important cognitive anthropologist at University of California, San Diego, and they had anthropology as a big part of their cognitive science program. Uh, but it didn't really take off, and the, and the culture side of, um, of uh, anthropology, for whatever reason, became sort of anti-science. Um, this is the postmodern people and um, and in a lot of universities it broke off from 
more evolutionary or biological anthropology. And the biological anthropology has always been, you know, more, uh, what do they call it, bone, stones and bones, and uh, the actual paleoanthropology and history. And so um, uh, the cognitive anthropology would have been the part that, that would have integrated in, and I don't know the reason why, but it never really, um, it never really took off. And um, yeah, and in uh, in psychology, yeah, I never really knew behavior. Uh, one one thing, uh, uh, Bruner, uh, in his, you should really read the Acts of Meaning, the first chapter, um, uh, if you haven't. But he um, he he calls the sort of computationalist uh, behaviorist with computers. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, they still had a very passive view of the organism. Um, I mean, uh, going in that direction, some people who do stuff like artificial life, where they build little robots that have to do things and have goals and strategies for achieving their goals and stuff, that's much more compatible with uh, a more social science humanist view of things. But the the, the classic cognitive science has always been a brain in a vat. Um, That's what they used to call it, the brain in the vat, where... I mean, it's 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 broadened out a little bit now, but if you go back and take a textbook from 20 years ago, you could look in the, um, and, and it's still true to, to a large extent today. Look in the index uh, or the te- of a um, of a book on cognitive psychology, and you won't see the word culture. You won't see the word communication. There'll be language because it'll be Chomsky type thing, but there won't be culture, no communication, no. Um, 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 none of the juicy stuff from the more um, hu- human sciences side of things. In Germany, um, they 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 distinguish the natural sciences from the human sciences, um, and um, from the human sciences side of things, you won't see much in 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 sort of the classic cognitive uh, psychology. So uh, I want to talk about some of your books. And uh, as I sort of mentioned, they have had a huge impact on me and, and appear to me to be some of the most sort of profoundly insightful books in all of cognitive science and psychology, uh, especially over the last 20 years or so. And uh, so one thing that's sort of notable about them is that there's a lot of them. Uh, so uh, you, you, you sort of have had this steady stream of books for a long time now, uh, about 20 years. Uh, when did you decide or when did you know that you wanted to become a writer, particularly of books in this sort of longer um, uh, manuscript format? <laughs> well, so so I guess my first um, sort of theoretical statement was a behavioral and brain sciences paper in 1993, which was called Cultural Learning. Um, and then in 1996 or so, I got this uh, call to the Max Planck, and we had done a lot of stuff. We'd started doing the stuff with chimpanzees, and I'd started getting on this line, starting with that cultural learning paper of trying to give a theoretical account of how humans were cultural and chimps really weren't adapted to be cultural beings. And then when I got the call to the Max Planck, I was there. Uh, and my sort of de- department was going to start in the fall, but I wanted to come in the beginning of the summer and um, um, and get things started. But basically, I had the whole summer with almost nothing to do because <laughs> nobody was there yet. I was there by myself, and I would go over to the institute every day, and and it was just hardly anybody there. We were just getting. I was. I got there earlier. Most people were planning to start in the fall, even in the other departments. And uh, that was before the internet, and I didn't, I couldn't really understand German TV, so um, I, you know, I had nothing to do. So um, I decided I would put all this stuff together in a book, um, and that would kind of wrap up what I had done before my Max Planck job, and then, um, and then I could go fresh from there. And so I spent that summer, summer of 1997. writing uh, that book um, and I don't remember exactly the details but I think I submitted it the, like early 98 or somewhere in 98 and uh, and it was published in 99 so um, and uh, I got uh, incredible feedback from the book uh, from various all kinds of people it won the William James Book Award and William James is of course 
someone who was not a computationalist. Uh, <laughs> he, he called them logic choppers. It was his name back at the turn of the century. Yeah. I don't know exactly what he meant by logic choppers, but um, uh, and um, and a lot of people have said to me more or less what you said to me that this was the book that made psychology interesting for them um and some people who are already you know doing work in on their own and so i got a lot of great feedback and i i enjoyed writing it and i got a lot of great feedback and so um i kept at it um i guess each book has a, a little bit of its own story so the the that was 99 then the 2003 and that was, was cultural my, origins of cognition right cultural origins of human cognition yes yeah okay good. and and then the second book was uh, constructing a language and that was because i was moving out of the language area so i had i had started in a lot of ways i had started with language and then i dug down deeper into it and saw that you know to use a language means uh to um uh, to have certain skills of social cognition it required cooperative motives uh, all kinds of things so i i started with language and said you can't just stay on that level you have to dig down deeper and so anyway i was moving away from language per se and um i thought before i move away i want to summarize the stuff we've done <laughs> kind of like the way i had with the previous book and so constructing a language was um uh uh was my sort of summing up before i moved on so both of the first two books were kind of summing up before i moved on in different ways that book also won an award from the uh, uh cognitive development society and those are my two highest cited if you go to google scholar those are my two highest cited citations is those two books um and uh and then the next book was basically I was invited to give the Jean Nicode lectures in Paris, and um, you you do a book in association with that. So that was not sort of me generating something, but uh, Dan Sperber was there, and I had been digging deep beneath language, and so I wrote a book about the origins of human communication, which I should have chosen a different title. It sounds too much like the first title, but anyway. Um, that was about uh, gesturing and chimpanzee communication and human children's communication before language like pointing and pantomiming and how the origin of language was probably in gestures and all that and so i put that together for those lectures based on our research on both language and pointing by the way if you've never read that book um uh, that's where i dive into the relation between narrative and grammar um, I have a whole thing about that, uh, and that's 2008. Uh, 2009 was the same thing. That that and, and it was uh, why we cooperate, and that was uh, lectures. That was the Tanner lectures that I gave at Stanford, and that has a book associated with it. So those two were generated by I wanted to do the lectures, and it had a book associated with it. So I pulled my thoughts together for those two. Um, and then I conceived the trilogy. <laughs> the trilogy was the three latest ones, uh, which is right. um, Natural History of Human Thinking, Natural History of Human Morality, and a book on ontogeny uh, that pulls that, that looks at both thinking and morality from the point of view of ontogeny, which is the most recent one. And I have my I discovered a note on my iPad not long ago, back in 2007, where I had the three of them. Uh, uh, wait, it was 2007? Uh, something like, uh, maybe 2009, 2009, something. No, sorry. 2010 or 11, something like that. Sure. But a few years before where I conceived all three of them before I even started the first one. Wow. So that was, that was really, um, so the first two and the last three were self-generated and, and the middle ones were kind of um, uh, done uh, to write up in, in sets of invited lectures. So I want to talk maybe uh, a little bit more about constructing a language. So yep. my sort of first question on that is sort of for the process of writing. Did you have a um, sort of structured way that you did the writing of that? Uh, or did you find it just came naturally and you just sort of hunkered down and, and busted it out? What did that sort of process look like for you? Well, I, I certainly wouldn't call this process of writing natural. It's not natural. It's effortful. Yeah. Uh, but um, um, 
you know, I'm big on outlines. And so I, I think one of the keys to writing, you know, one key is know your audience. That's in some ways, number one, what are you trying to, you know, you have to have something you want to say. So you have to have an argument. And I had that this in that, in that book, constructing language, it was against Chomsky. And so that was, that was, that always makes it easier if you have a clear target. Um, and, um, and second, who's your audience? And I was everything I write, I tend to write for young people. I, I, I have pe I have young people in mind because um, uh, established scholars aren't going to change their mind. So um, you know, let's go for the people who still have some flexibility. Um, and um, and then I'm big on outlines. Uh, so uh, I think you have to sort of know where you are in your argument at all times, and so you have to have the argument. Um, sketched out somewhere and that doesn't mean that you slavishly stick to your outlines and that you you um, you know you know exactly what you're gonna do before you do it but if you change then you change the outline you write a new outline and then you go with a new outline but you always have an outline even if you're modifying them continuously which I generally am I'm generally sort of modifying them as I write and then I and I have a big outline for the whole thing in terms of the chapters and stuff. And again, that may change. And then when I'm writing a chapter, I have an outline for the chapter. And then when I have a section in the chapter, I have an outline for the section. So I, I think that um, the, the, one of the major um, uh, difficulties in in writing well is uh, knowing what to put in and what to leave out. And that is determined by your under your knowing what argument you're trying to make and is it relevant to that argument or not so when I'm writing I always have a separate file called extras and the extras is often as long as the manuscript by the time I finish and it's all the stuff that I deleted but I couldn't bear to just delete it and see it go into nowhere so I put it in the extras file and I probably never look at it again but <laughs> it, 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 it's comforting to know that it's it didn't disappear totally but anyway so you got to get rid of stuff the delete key is your friend and um, it doesn't fit it's an interesting idea you know but it doesn't fit so that's where outlines help is keeping you on on track so one thing I'm interested in with the, the outline scheme here is how it changes the editing process because I would imagine that if you have things so fleshed out sort of at the beginning um, then it maybe relieves some of the pressure on at least the sort of reor like reorganizing the structure of the book or the chapter in the editing process. Is that the case or do you no, still read things? No, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it could be the opposite in the sense that I, I see, I read books by, I, I typically don't read the whole book, but when I start reading a book and it starts looking like somebody's stream of consciousness, I, I get bored. So I think people who don't have an outline and just say whatever comes in their mind, they don't do that much editing and i think that's one of the problems but when you have these outlines you know what's what argument you're making and how everything in it fits and then when you're actually writing it and you see that oh gosh that didn't fit the way i thought it was going to fit or that's a different point than i thought i was going to make right. uh, then you reorganize so again it's a the 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 outline is not um yeah let me emphasize the outline is not uh a structure that is stays unchanged that you slavishly follow it's your sort of trying to keep straight in your head what the uh, what the whole arc of the thing is going to be and how what you're doing now fits in and so I think that often leads to more editing because you really need to stay uh, on task so for the constructing a language book as you mentioned it sort of is taking this opposing side to Chomsky, which in linguistics, I suppose, is a little bit like taking the opposite side of Newton in physics, <laughs> uh, at least until Einstein comes along. But uh, at any rate, when did you start to suspect that uh, some of the largest currents in the field were going in the wrong direction? Well, I mean, the, the, the Chomsky thing, it, it, when I first went to graduate school, you know, I learned Chomsky and I learned a, a sort of a reasonable version of it. That would be the 1965 version, the extended standard theory. And then it started, you know, he kept changing it and more abstract and more abstruse. And then when cross-linguistic data would come in, they would ignore it. Um, and uh, so it, it just became clear to me that uh, this was not a scientific theory. This was something else. This was an attempt to formalize 
a particular way of looking at language. And the way I've settled on talking about it in the year since is that the, the basic idea of Chomsky is that natural language is like a formal language, like math or logic or something like that, because that's, that's what he, they, they used to model it. Um, and it leaves out pragmatics and it leaves out uh, semantics. It leaves out everything interesting. And so I just always thought that whatever it was, it wasn't a psychology of language. So I have these two edited volumes called uh, The New Psychology of Language, where I tout the, uh, the approach of people like Lanneker and Lakoff and people like that. Um, because theirs was a real psychology of language where they talked about things like categories and perspectives and topics and focus and things that a psychologist would know and love. And you read Chomsky and you see the empty category principle and the subjacency constraint and you say, what is that? Uh, so I just, I thought if he, want, if, he, if he wants to do mathematical linguistics and say it's a formalization of structures of language for mathematical purposes, uh, fine, but but he from the beginning said this is what's in the child's mind, and with no evidence. I mean, no, he, they didn't. He didn't do experiments. They, you know, nothing. So, I, in a lot of ways, it was a, it was an objection to the to the over formality of it and to the um, methodology of it. And a, 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 a way I've said that in, in more recent years is it's like at the beginning of artificial intelligence. Um, let's say playing chess. There were two approaches to getting a computer to play a good game of chess. One was to try to model what humans did. So some of the early people would get human chess players to talk out loud when they were playing, and they tried to write the program to do what humans do. And those programs never got very good. But other people said, we don't care how humans do it. We just want to get the computer to do it the best way it can, and we'll exploit uh, what computers do best, which is you know fast processing, unlimited memory. Um, and then they built computers that beat everybody, including the grandmasters. But they weren't trying to model humans. So I think that's what Chomsky was doing. He was trying to write some kind of a formalism that somehow would account for language, but it was never, there was never any experimentation or any um, systematic effort to actually investigate if that's the way humans do it or not. So anyway, that became clear to me, and then that, for me, that's the end of it. If you're, if you're not really doing science, then I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, and then so did you? Well, okay. So one thing I think's uh, you know sort of notable on that same level is that if you look at people who actually have a relationship to using language, so for example, like a former Bible translator, linguistic anthropologist Daniel Everett. Yeah. Um, here's someone who actually has an expertise in learning languages that are yeah. not their native one. And their theory, uh, at least his, but I've seen this in several different cases, looks a lot more like yours than the sort of overly uh, ac academized Chomsky. In Absolutely. I mean, Chomsky is, you know, he was one of the comp original computationalists. His earliest work, the 1968 um, thing on the logical structure of language, uh, was, um, it, it was logic. It was basically an exercise in logic. And... Um, <laughs> But not just Dan Everett, but Dan Everett, um, he came and visited the linguistics department at uh, Max Planck when I was there and uh, because they were a department of typology and typological linguists study all the different languages of the world and try to compare them. So now if you want to say, um, you know, universal grammar, well, you're looking at all the different languages. Is there anything universal about them? The Chomskyans never did that. They didn't look at all the languages of the world and trying to say what's in common. They just said, oh, here's what universal grammar must be. Uh, yeah, so it was, um, yeah. So anyway, there are linguists who are doing uh, that kind of thing, but they're in, you know, they're, sometimes they're in romance languages departments, sometimes they're are in, in various, you know, area studies like East Asian studies or something. You'll have Chinese linguists and things like that. Um, but um, uh, they're not in the mainstream cognitive psychology at all. So you mentioned with origins, uh, cultural origins of human cognition, that that's your most cited work, uh, and uh, it really is this incredible, grand sort of sweeping theory in the best way, in the best mm -hmm. way of 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 all these different um, phenomena, and uh, so much explanatory power. When you f first started working on that book and and putting down those no notes about uh, joint attention and how it's this sort of linchpin 
uh, for a number of aspects of human cognition. Did you realize you were something onto something so big? I, I did. Uh, that um, um, that was where that was where Bruner. That was Bruner was the one who started started this idea of joint attention. And I was studying at the time uh, chimpanzee gestures. So I would say the first real insight that I had in that direction was that chimpanzees gesture to one another to communicate, but they gesture dyadically. So I'm trying to get you to play or I want to nurse if I'm if you're my mom, I want to fight, I want to I want to have sex if you're the opposite sex, but it's all about regulating our social interaction face to face. And what kids are doing from before language, that's absolutely critical with the pointing gesture is they are directing attention to something outside that we share attention to not just regulating our face-to-face -face interaction and it's a it's a triangle it goes it I, I as a as a as a graduate student I read a lot of Charles Peirce who's very big on triangles and and triads uh, and um, it, it's a triangle you me and the thing we're sharing attention to and um, and I got this insight that this was the essential this was the crucible <laughs> that distinguished the way we deal with the world and the way apes deal with the world they they deal with it as individuals where they figure out things in all kinds of clever ways and they try to get others to do things they want them to do in their gestural communication and sometimes vocal communication but they're not sharing attention to something um, and uh, and this ultimately is the the sort of bottom line for how we get to uh, our particular forms of communication and our particular forms of culture so that was really the that was kind of the the, the starting point of the whole thing was that the this seeing that apes were basically relating to the world individually and human children from a very early age were relating relating to a shared world with a partner So another sort of book question that I have for you is that, um, so you've never really written a trade book. No. And pretty much everything that you've, you've published is university presses for academics, like you mentioned for sort of uh, ideally a younger academic audience. Um, but does that, is that something that never really appealed to you? No. <laughs> what would be the point? I mean, the, the you know, the... Um, uh, I mean, the, the, the books I've written have gotten a lot of, one of the reasons they've been cited a lot is because people outside of psychology uh, and, you know, read them. So, um, but they're academics. And if you're talking about writing for a non-academic audience, um, I, you know, I'm certainly not going to go to all the pain and suffering of writing a book for money. That, that wouldn't do it. Uh, and um, and that audience is just not one, you know. But when you look at these popular books, you know they they're popular for a year or two, and then they're gone. And my you know my my book from twenty years ago is still influencing people the way people think. So, yeah, I I'm just more interested in people who um, 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 who are going to do something with it. Um, and also it's true that when you write for a more educated audience, um, you know, you can assume certain common ground and, uh, and you can do it, uh, yeah, at a better level. So I just never was motivated to do it. Fair enough. Um, so I guess the sort of final line of, of, of questioning that I have for you is that, so we mentioned it a couple times that you sort of identify with being outside of the mainstream of cognitive science number ways a little bit yeah yeah and uh, you know also uh, the, the the institutions that you've been affiliated with it's not like you spent your entire career at Harvard or or anything like that um, did your PhD in in Georgia so I'm wondering how, like how does that uh, 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 identity play out for you do you sort of <laughs> embrace that? I know that was something that actually Herb Simon really uh, you know sort of embraced that he was very proud of the fact that he had uh, you know, it's not like he went to uh, University of Chicago, or whatever. It's it's not like he was not in an institution, but he he really embraced the sense. So is that something that you embrace do, as well? Do you know who my graduate advisor was? Uh, no. Nobody does. Is Yvonne something? <laughs> exactly. Uh, it was a German but, German name. Exactly. But um, 
Uh, no, uh, and I had a colleague, uh, I assume you've heard of Ulrich Neisser. Yeah. He, he was my colleague at uh, Emory for a while, just for uh, some years. And he said to me one day, your greatest strength was that you come from outside of the mainstream, that you're, uh, you came from outside. So, um, yeah, I have embraced that. Um, that um, um, are, you sound like you're American, not British. Correct. Yeah, where are you from? I'm from Seattle originally. Yeah. Well, um, you know, in, in, in American academia, you know, the Northeast and the uh, Ivy League and all of that has a certain um, culture and tradition in various fields. And, and the, you know, the cognitive revolution started in Cambridge, Massachusetts and whatnot. Um, and uh, I think that if you were part of that, you just, you know, you science, you get enculturated into scientific paradigms. That's the way Thomas Kuhn talks about it. Um, and uh, I didn't. I got. I read on my own. My my advisor von Glossersfeld was um, more of a philosopher than he was a psychologist, and I read all over the place in all kinds of different disciplines. And a lot of my, you know, my best ideas have come from reading in areas that are completely outside um, my discipline. So you know, if you're doing cooperation, which I've been doing for the last some years now. You need to read the economists on on cooperation. You need to read political scientists on cooperation. You you need to, um, uh, yeah, get outside your discipline. And I think uh, you know if you're enculturated too uh, strongly too early into one way of um, viewing things, um, yeah, it can inhibit that. So yeah, I have. I, I'm I'm not saying I would recommend that people stay away from uh, 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 a. Uh, um, um, a scientific paradigm, but I, um, you know, I work on some, kind of the apprentice model. And when graduate students come in, I tell them, okay, it's your career, your thing. You're going to make your decision. You're going to do what you want to do. And I'm here as a resource for you to, as someone who has a lot of experience and, you know, draw on me like you need to, but I'm not here to train you. So I, I have, I have a good anecdote for you. So, um, uh, cause the word train, uh, uh, uh cued it off. I was at a conference with my advisor, von Glossersfeld, and uh, it was a Piaget conference, and Bruner comes up. Bruner knew Piaget, uh, knew um, von Glossersfeld a little bit somewhere, and as he was um, leaving, Bruner said to von Glossersfeld, that's, uh, you know, that's a, uh, you've done a good job with him, talking about me. He said, you've done a good job, and he said, you've done a good job training him. And then Bruner left, and von Glossersfeld, who, who, who comes from uh, Austria, German-speaking Austria, and he said, training. God, the way you Americans talk, he said, um, you would sound like you're training a horse. Okay. So he objected to the whole notion of training. And so I don't, I don't think of it like that. I think of it like, um, you know, um, I tell my graduate students, you, you, what you want to do is by the time you leave, you want to have a kind of a research I, uh, paradigm and direction that you think has a lot of promise to it, a lot of depth to it, and you and that you can do stuff with empirically. Uh, but you discover that not by you know putting on blinders. You discover that by uh, reading widely, going to talks in philosophy and anthropology as well as psychology and so forth. And um, uh, yeah, and and another way of saying this, uh, the same thing is is. Um, um, is I've always been problem centered, and I don't care what discipline it's from. If I'm, if I'm trying to figure out cooperation, uh, then I want to read everybody who's ever written on it. I don't care what discipline they're in. Yeah, that's phenomenal. It's certainly something that I identify with um, in, in in the way that I try to go about things. And uh, well, one of the things with Piaget from the beginning that I imprinted on. Uh, Piaget's book called The Origins of Intelligence in Children. I don't know if you know that book, but you should look at it if you don't. Um, in the introduction, this is a book, and the introduction is about the biological bases of human behavior. And it, he has Immanuel Kant's categories of human reason, and he lays them out in a table. Space, time, causality, uh, quantity, and all that. He lays them out and talks about you know, human evol evolution ending up in this way of this epistemology of the world. And then the empirical part of the book is infants from one to 18 months old 
kicking mobiles, grabbing objects, <laughs> uh, trying to find hidden objects, uh, using tools, really basic stuff that if you would just see in any baby walking around anywhere, just everyday stuff. But he's giving it this incredibly rich and broad interpretation in terms of um, you know the, some of the deepest categories that philosophers have ever come up with. So um, uh, I guess I imprinted on that model also. Let's talk about you know kids pointing at things, which if you have a one-year-old child it will happen to you you know several dozen times a day. Let's talk about these everyday simple things um, and and let's uh, uh, flesh them out and and see their their underlying significance and um, and for me the, the the what really started the made the whole thing especially important and deep is that when you can get the comparison to apes and you can say here's an everyday thing that looks simple but apes don't do it so why don't they do it what is it we have that they don't have uh, that makes it natural for us and not natural for them and and I think that the comparison to apes gives everything more depth and so um, um, and so uh, yeah so I've imprinted on that Piaget model and that's what it, um, uh, and the apes gave me the opportunity to really do it in a, in a, in a I think a good way well, this has been uh, a, okay. a huge pleasure. Uh, I think we're coming up uh, at our agreed upon time limit here. Yeah. Yes, yes, uh, yes. I don't want to get you, you going. So, uh, thank you. This has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for your time today, Mike. I've You're loved every welcome. second of this. All right. Thanks a lot. That was my interview with Michael Tomasello. I hope that you enjoyed. Uh, and if you want to connect with me further, you can do so on Twitter at Cody Commerce through my newsletter, which you can subscribe to on my website, CodyCommerce.com/newsletter. Uh, and then uh, you can also directly send me an email, cody.commerce.writing at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, and if you've enjoyed the show, then please consider subscribing on whichever platform you may be listening through. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here again next week. Mm-hmm.